Welcome to the Social Mobility Talks podcast brought to you by the Social Mobility Commission. Today's episode is on contextualised recruitment, hosted by me, Alan Francis. I am the Interim Chair of the SMC, and the role of the Social Mobility Commission is to publish research on social mobility. I am joined here today by three very eminent and expert guests to discuss this very interesting topic. I have Stephen Gorard, Barnaby Lennon and Joanne Conway. Hi everyone, I'm Joanne Conway. I am the Head of Diversity, Equity and Inclusiveness at EY. I've been with EY for 16 years now in a number of roles, including finance, before I moved into the area of diversity and inclusiveness. I'm also studying at the moment. I'm doing a doctorate on the topic of privilege in relation to race, gender and class and uh, social mobility is a strategic priority for EY, which is why I'm delighted to be here today. Thank you. Hi everybody, my name is Barnaby Lennon. Um, I was a teacher for 40 years um, and actually the head of an independent school. And when I retired, I set up a state school in the East End of London, whose specific objective was to improve social mobility by getting uh, our students into good universities. And I'm now the Dean of Education at the University of Buckingham. Oh, hello, I'm Stephen Garrard. I'm Professor of Education and Public Policy at Durham University and the director of the Durham University Evidence Centre for Education. So in this episode of Social Mobility Talks, we're going to discuss contextualised admissions and recruitment. Contextualised admissions and recruitment is taking a person's unique circumstances into account when looking at their application for a job or for university. It encourages employers or universities to make some adjustments to their admissions or recruitment criteria to see people's past achievements within the context of factors like the school they attended, their social background, and where they're from. So I'm going to start off by asking each of our guests to give us some introductory views on contextualised admissions. So I'll start, Stephen, if I may, I'd like to start with you. So what do you see as the benefits of contextualised admissions? How are universities currently using them? And do you see them as a good thing? So, yeah, as you said, contextualised admissions for university normally involve a reduced offer at intake for the student for a disadvantaged student. It's often combined with supported progression. And depending on which part of the UK you're in, um, it's really well settled in. Most universities are doing it or say that they're doing it. It's used to try and reduce intake stratification. So that's to reduce the... Um, stratification of student intake bodies, perhaps to increase the proportion who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, which is perhaps necessary due to the link between disadvantage, um, earlier disadvantage, and the lower average attainment of students. And not all disadvantaged students have low attainment by any means, but there is a, a quite clear correlation. I mean, it's a hard thing, isn't it? 1066 and all that, is this a good thing? I think in general, you could say it's a good thing, but it must be a stopgap measure. It's not a solution to the real issue. Barnaby, I'm going to come to you next. Yeah, so I think it's a very good thing um, because what universities should be doing is trying to find the best students. And that means the students who have the greatest potential to make the most of university and do well. Um, and that won't always be indicated by their GCSE or A-level results. Um, because some pupils may have individual circumstances um, which have prevented them getting the results that they should be, have, have got, but nevertheless, they have great potential. So um, 
I think it's a sensible thing, but there are many problems with it. Um, and the problems include putting off good potential applicants, um, deceiving potential applicants by not being at all clear about your policies or methods. And Joanne, from an employer's point of view, why are employers using contextualization? How does it differ from how universities use it? And is it a good thing? Yeah, so from um, an organisation perspective, you know, we at EY use it, it, it allows us to be able to um, really understand candidates' experiences and do that in a way that is more equitable. So we can look at things like their their grades, we can look at that in relation to the school that they want to went to, so the performance of the school that they were in, in relation to how they have... Um, how successful they've been in comparison to their peers. So we see that as being a much more um, equitable way to be able to look at the data. I mean, I agree with some of the comments that have been made previously around consistency, around making sure that, you know, that efficiency piece, the transparency. And I'd also say as well around building up that trust around, you know, people giving us their data because we can only use contextualised recruitment if we actually have the information. Of course, it is based, it is... Um, you know, it's not mandatory. We we ask for people if they would like to go through that process. So we have seen um, positive uptake in terms of, of how that benefits. And it's in line with the work that we're doing around uh, equity in the workplace. So things like leveling the playing field is, is absolutely critical. Excellent. Thank you very much. I'm going to go to our first question now. Is the aim of contextualization to um, achieve some equity targets in a way that might be described as kind of social engineering to make sure we have a kind of representative intake across different social backgrounds or is it about merit yeah it's a re really good question actually it's it's um a debate that i hear quite often so i'm glad that you've asked that question the way that we look at it and i you know we talk about it in terms of not just focusing on the scoreboard so we look at and we set targets because you know in our experience at ey setting targets focuses minds it, it brings conversations it keeps it on the agenda it allows us to track progress it allows us to see where we have gaps where we're where we're doing things that are working and we can do that more and we can move more quickly but if you only focus on the targets then you lose the essence of why you're actually doing it and um that's what we do so while we set those targets in terms of the contextualized recruitment it's also about what are we doing with individuals and making sure that all of our people when they come through that process that they're actually being set up for success so there's a number of things that we do around support um particularly around things like exams and studying for our students that come through but also in in, in general that that um you know the, that tension between those two in the diversity, equity and inclusiveness space, it's so important that you look at the cultural side of things. So we do a lot of work around behavioral change and working with our leaders because this is not about fixing minority groups. It's not about fixing underrepresented individuals. They're bringing their skills and their talent and we need that as they are. We don't want to change people. So we need to focus on making sure that we change our, our processes, our policies, our systems and our organizations so that they're set up that will um, allow everybody to be successful and not just a particular group of individuals. So would you say, for, from EY's point of view, this is really about spotting talent that might otherwise be missed? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's about spotting talent that, that may be missed. And, um, you know, I'm one of those individuals from a from a personal perspective. I'm going to, come, I'm going to go to Stephen next, I think, because um, 
Stephen, you expressed some concerns a little bit about the way it's done. Well, I've got, I mean, I've got two levels of concern. I mean, one is the way in which it's actually conducted in practice at the moment. And the other is um, whether this is the right solution to the problem it's intended to address. Um, and I think the answer to both of those is likely to be no. Children who are or young people who are born um, later in the school year for every academic year do less well at school, they do less well in sports, they do less well in life on average. And I think people know that. That's why I'm not advocating them, but you know, grammar school 11 plus exams are age standardized and so on. And the idea of age standardizing, I think is widely accepted. And we don't do it in entry to higher education, even though summer born children are about 10% less likely to attend higher education than their peers uh, who were born early in the year with the same qualifications. But I don't think anybody could object to the idea because what it's saying is through no fault of their own, these young people just could by an accident of when they were born in relation to an arbitrary date that was set by policy, you know, 100 years ago, they're going to appear to be doing less well at school. Um, it's not that there's any difference in their talent or anything like that. And no one could argue with some way of adjusting age-based scores in order to remedy that. And the issue with disadvantaged student, uh, students, uh, we'll talk about disadvantage later, but it's the same thing. Through no fault of the, of the child or the student, through the circumstances of their birth and their life so far, they may not have um, the qualifications that appear with who is identical in other respects but doesn't have that disadvantage might appear at university with. And contextualized admissions is a perfectly appropriate way of trying to overcome that. Um, I'm not going to talk for too long, but if I could just raise um, uh, two, two main points. The first one is, um, you noticed I haven't used the term merit. Um, I'm not sure I'm happy with that. I'm not sure to what extent we should use qualifications as an indicator of merit. It is currently, and probably quite rightly, illegal in this country to select people for university or occupations on the basis of their age or their sex or their sexuality and all of those other protected characteristics, ethnicity. But we all know full well that average qualification for each of those groups is different. But it's not illegal to select by qualifications, which we already know vary by those characteristics, which is illegal to select on. And it may be that in the fullness of time, we stop using qualifications for that purpose, for the reason that it is going to create, it's inevitably going to create the bias that contextualized admissions is an incomplete solution to. And the other point I wanted to make, and perhaps we could come back to that, is I think that they're conflating two different issues. The first one being, uh, who has access to any form of higher education? And the second one is, who has access to those most prestigious, competitive, highly selective universities within the HE system? And I don't think the solutions to the two things would be the same. So, um, your point about qualifications, um, isn't that an argument against having using them at all? What, what would be the point of qualifications if we have to wait weight them in terms of social background to that degree that we kind of say well d d what, what's the point of having a grades and b grades and c grades and first class degrees and two ones and so forth if that's the case well isn't that the extreme case of contextualized admissions 
to say that to some extent people are not responsible for the grades they achieve isn't that, I mean that, that's taking the contextualized admission argument and then stretching it maybe beyond what it could sustain but if these things are not fair why should we use them Barnaby what's your what's your response to that and what's your position on this so I think Stephen has said a number of outrageous things um which is good the um I mean first of all I, I he started by talking about summer-born children I think that's that's a you know an interesting point but when you think about the subgroup of summer-born summer-born children um you know that um you have to know you have to decide what weight you're going to give to that particular characteristic that's quite hard to measure there'll be many many exceptions of course um although on average of course Stephen is right summer-born children do less well academically there are a huge number who do extremely well um and and of course, I'm always a bit worried, and we can talk about this later, Alan, about the about the unexpected consequences of universities using measures like summer-born children, because you can be sure that some parents will then start trying to engineer things so they have children in the summer, uh, if it becomes you know a benefit to them. And and of course, we you know in in my world in the independent sector, parents ask this question: Is it going to be an advantage sending my child to an independent school, or is it going to be a significant disadvantage in terms of Getting, getting it getting into a university like Durham um, the on the on the on the question um, that Stephen raised about qualifications what I would say is all the research evidence shows that your prior qualifications in other words GCSE and A-level grades are the best predictor of degree class there's been quite a lot of research on that and um, and I'm a I'm a believer in um, universities taking those students who have the best potential, and that is measured in part by getting a decent degree by their degree class. Um, obviously the statement uh, that students aren't responsible for the grades that they achieve is, this is an outrageous statement for somebody like me who's spent their 40 years of their life in schools, helping children to get the grades that they achieved. And, um, some of those came from wealthy backgrounds, some from quite uh, low income, poor backgrounds. And, uh, and I would like to feel that my pupils were going to be rewarded, not only by their intelligence, but also by the amount of work and effort that they put into getting decent grades. Uh, and I would say they certainly were responsible for, for that. And then finally, on, on the points that Stephen made, I would also say that although there is of course, selection at the age of 18 for university. The key cutoff point in this country is 16, because it's only when they've got their GCSE grades that pupils in this country are divided into sheep and goats. Those who are permitted to go on and take A-levels, that's about 60%, and then the rest who are not permitted to go and take A-levels and go normally into vocational routes, sometimes at schools, sometimes at further education colleges. So. The big, the big, the big moment of selection is actually uh, sixteen. So the, I mean, in general terms, I would just repeat what I said earlier. I'm all in favour of uh, contextual admissions. Um, I think that it shouldn't be a sociological experiment. It shouldn't be based on diversity targets, but it should be based on finding those pupils who, who um, have the greatest merits. But there are many problems with it, which we'll come back to. Um, so we kind of got two views here of contextualization, it feels to me. We've got one that's quite a radical view, which is to say, look, the gaps between people 
can be mapped onto their social backgrounds in quite a radical way. And if we push it, and I think Stephen, you were s suggesting it was quite a, you know, uh, stretching it to its limit, um, contextualization might mean a completely different view of admissions across the board. Whereas I think, John, when you were describing the way that, for example, EY would use it, I think you're using it in a slightly different way. You're saying, broadly speaking, um, grades matter. Um, but what you're looking for is exceptions to the rule, people who might just have missed out because they wouldn't fit the normal uh, kind of profile. So it, it, is that a fair description? Yeah, I mean, the, there is that, um, it's that middle ground, isn't it, of, of between understanding that it's not, it's not perfect. So I agree with, you know, some of the things that have, have been shared around that. But we have to um, I'll answer your question first before I <laughs> give my point of view on some of the things that have been spoken about. But we um, so we we will look at it and it will allow us to look at, um, you know, what people. So, so there's a there's a minimum. So there is a baseline. There is, you know, everybody that has come forward will have had at least met a, a baseline. But then there will also be on top of that instead of, you know, selecting everybody that comes from one that has, you know, the highest grades and, and then all of those individuals who have the highest grades may come from or more likely to come from a particular school or a particular background, you know, and that's based on on evidence and research. We will look at that in comparison to the school that they've gone to. So, for example, somebody who has gone to a school um, and they have ha they have got um four C's for example but but in comparison to the school that they're at and their peer group that that's absolutely exceptional and they may be borderline being being um, accepted then for those circumstances then we're able to make that decision and say based on everything else actually the potential that is there then we're going to make that decision and we're going to accept that individual into the organization so it is about equity it is about getting um, level in the playing field thanks Joanne let me come back then S Stephen, I want to go back to your point about really stretching this out. Do you, do you think that employers like EY are being radical enough? Do you think they should go much further then in terms of the way they use contextualization um, than the way that Joanna's described it? Well, it's difficult for me to answer that um, because we haven't done research on contextualized except, you know, um, interviews and acceptance for occupations. And what I was trying to do is draw an analogy with um, current models and contextualized admissions, which is the same thing, to look at it, as Joanne said, and think, well, there are things in this person's past which are arbitrary and not their responsibility, and for which they should not be penalized. Um, and that's what contextualized admissions tends to do. Um, I wasn't necessarily claiming that um, nothing that people do is their responsibility. I think that would be um, too strong a claim. But it is interesting, uh, was it Barnaby was talking about prior qualifications predicting later qualifications, which they do. You know, between any phase, the correlation is about 0.7 using a Pearson correlation or a sort of regression approach. But if you use background and what you know about a child when they're born, then actually you can predict the first set of prior, qualifi um, of prior qualifications like key stage one test scores with considerable accuracy. I mean, astonishingly so. And I'm happy to send around um, uh, analysis of ours and others that, that show this. So you can substitute things like whether a child is identified as having a learning challenge, whether they're coming from a poor family, whether they speak English as an additional language and so on, instead of having prior qualifications and you can produce predictions which are just as good. 
So there's a, what's possible is that the, even the prior qualifications, even at key stage two or key stage four, are themselves the outcome of these prior things. And all we're doing by using later qualifications is continuing to use those prior background characteristics. And that's the point I was trying to make about um, with my reference to the law. I'm not, I'm not suggesting at the moment a radical overhaul. I just want people to be aware of how strongly people's trajectory, to go back to the term that um, was used just now, um, how, how strongly the trajectory does have, uh, well, uh, an impact on the outcomes for students, which is why um, contextualized admissions are fair. I'm not saying they're not fair, I'm saying they're not done well, and I'm saying they're not the best solution to the problems we have. Where does hard work and talent fit then? Yeah, well, I suppose it depends what you're trying to achieve. Um, I'm saying I think universities and indeed, you know, EY and, and, and almost any company you could think of are trying to identify those students who have the best potential. Um, so in, in a university, that means have the best potential to do well in the degree course. Um, and, and I quite understand that in Ernst & Young, you might also be deliberately seeking diversity because you believe that diversity produces better outcomes for the company as a whole. Um, that's quite quite right. So, um, but the thing we haven't the question we haven't asked yet, um, and that is, do those students and employees who get lower offers do well? Where are you on this thing about hard work and and talent in the the kind of contextualised recruitment story? It, it it is about hard work, but it's not enough to just have hard work it comes back to this myth of the meritocracy you know you can work as hard as you want to work but if there are barriers in in place in terms of um you not having access to knowing who the right networks are that you don't know the the processes all the shadow processes that happen or you don't have the mentors or the sponsors then it doesn't matter how hard you work you know you you it, it may be harder for you and there may be barriers in place so what i would say is that hard work is is obviously really important but it's not the only it's not the only thing, you know, there are there are systemic and historical things that are at play that we all need to take responsibility for to be able to break, to, to move forward with, with this. Stephen, what is the evidence of impact around contextualised recruitment? What what evidence is there that it's it works well? Well, where it's been tried, using the visible indicators that have been used, that obviously it does widen participation it's not it's not a, a seismic shift yet but there are changes to the nature of the intakes to the student bodies obviously you've got to be careful that it's not representing just a change in the population now, i mentioned supported progression i mean durham and i think many other universities offer supported progression to all students not just those who arrive on contextual offers and i think that's correct but the our evidence and the evidence overall is quite clear those students who are accepted or come onto courses who've been constrained by disadvantage and were given contextualized offers, on average, are doing at least as well and probably better than the, the peers. There's no evidence of, of sort of declining standards. Um, I think it's because if, if we could correctly identify a student whose potential had been constrained by environmental factors in their life so far, then they have the most chance 
to, um, if I can prove during their years at university, compared to, I'm going to use a cliche here, but you know, so a privately educated student who's had all the privileges in life and has been tutored up to the eyeballs to get to their A-level results. There's not that much more room for them to improve. But for some of those children with, sorry, students with younger, uh, with lower grades, there might be more potential to improve. So that, I think we can clear that one up. I think it's, it's not endangering universities or the potential uh, or the attainment of their students. The only concern I have is that all of these things are measured in terms of things like dropout rates, but primarily degree classes where they're available for the three quarters of universities that have degree classes. So then you've got a kind of tautology. All we're saying is, as it with the prediction of, of prior qualifications, if you pick people on the basis of people who do well in assessments, they tend to do well in assessments. Um, I'm not sure that that's how we should judge the success of the system or the success of the individual. Barnaby, what's your response to that? Well, I mean, I just feel that I am inclined to uh, welcome into my university those students who have got talent, are motivated and work hard, uh, even if that is the product of the environment, um, which it may well be, and it certainly is definitely is the product of their genetic inheritance. I think that that's true. Um, but in terms of university to uh, university entry, I, I welcome such people, and that's what you know most members of the public, I guess, would expect. Um, the just one other point I want to lob in here, and that is that um, I was interested that when I set up uh, a school in East London for teaching A-levels, and most of my students would have been on free school meals in their previous school before uh, they took A-levels. Um, they were nearly all the first person in their family to apply. I mean, a typical student at my school would have been a Bangladeshi girl, let's say, um, many of whom went on to read medicine. Um, many of them, when we talked about contextual admissions, felt that they did not want to have a leg up, did not want to be artificially propelled into a medical school or Oxford and Cambridge. Um, um, and I just make, make that point really, that, uh, that, that the universities may think it's a good thing. I think, I, I, and you know, because I've said it, I think contextual admissions is a good thing, um, but not everyone likes to be labeled as a free school meal pupil um, or, uh, you know, I am black and therefore I am subject to certain advantages in terms of admissions to this university. We know across the world that these are you know, quite difficult, contentious and dangerous things. So, um, no, I, I welcome uh, anyone who's got talent and is motivated to work hard regardless of their environment. But while accepting that pupils who go to schools which on average gets, get poor exam results should be given some advantage. I think that's absolutely right. That is what contextual admissions means. So Stephen, explain why you say definitely not. Because we're talking about individuals, not about um, places they come from. Um, I mean, it's most obvious with regions or with postcode areas, but it's also true of schools. If you accept people because they go to a heavily disadvantaged school or a school that has low attainment, or you accept people with, you know, from areas with low participation rates or um, with high levels of, of, of index of multiple deprivation, then you're not choosing an individual. There's a kind of fallacy involved in doing that. The majority of disadvantaged students don't go to heavily disadvantaged student uh, schools. 
all live in heavily disadvantaged areas. So one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why contextualized emissions is not working now is that people are using aggregate measures of disadvantage rather than individual ones. We only know the aggregate measures because we know the individual ones. We know how many people have participated in the university or have high deprivation in you know, Glasgow or whatever, um, because we know how, what the individuals are like in Glasgow. If we know what the individuals are like, just use that. If they're disadvantaged, they get contextualized emissions. I don't think that there's any evidence that taking people from disadvantaged areas who are not disadvantaged is any form of benefit for the higher education system or increases equity. They've got to be individual measures, they've got to be verifiable, and they've got to be clear. If we don't use those, then we're going to get loads and loads of false positives. So I'm really interested in this point you've made, Stephen, because I think it gets to the nuts and bolts of some really tricky issues that we're debating in the Social Mobility Commission as well, which is about what measures we use and how accurately we use them. So we're very concerned, for example, about this. Every report we read about disadvantage and, and advantage kind of just is very binary. And um, so it almost implies that everybody in the disadvantaged group is all the same and everybody else is all the same. And it's kind of like, well, hang on, life is just a bit more complicated than that. So um, I, I'm going to move on to the next question for you all in terms of the way we use contextualization, both employers and universities and any of the contexts they used, what criteria should be used? So we talk a lot about social background. And Stephen, you talked about area that you live in, the type of school you go to. But do, they, do the measures we've got really capture the wider range of issues that might affect somebody's uh, ability to fulfill their potential? I think they have to be legal, verified, not just the subject of the report of the individual, Otherwise, you'll get you know all the statement, all the statements, personal statements, will be saying about how much what happened when their uncle died and all of that sort of stuff. I'm afraid there would be a lot of gaming of that kind of situation. So, what we're looking for is something that's just clear, but is the has the strongest relationship to the indicators we're currently looking at, which is their um, attainment at age 18 or their attainment at age 16. So, I think the best indicator for picking up SES which is legal and verified, is the duration of free school meals. I accept what um, Barnaby Nelson have said. And yes, we've had examples where the best GCSE scores in a particular year have been a, you know, a black kid on, on free school meals. But the, the bulk of the problem lies with poverty and early poverty and early environment with these students. And it gets worse for every year that they're entitled to free school meals. So there's a huge difference between a child from a family who's been on free school meals for one term or even two years because of an economic downturn and somebody who's been on, who by the time they reach the age of 18 will have been eligible for free school meals for every year while at school. And in fact, the, the effect size in the attainment between the temporarily disadvantaged and everybody else is much less than between the temporary disadvantaged and the permanently or long-term disadvantaged. So I think the first thing that people could do, uh, universities and employers could do, to make contextualized admissions fairer would be to use long-term verified disadvantage. Now you're gonna miss out some disadvantaged students, I know that, but as a basis for it, as a foundation, you're gonna pick up very, very few false positives. All of those will have had to struggle. So I absolutely get the logic of where you've gone with the argument, but I think I look at, so I work here in a college in Oldham, 
where we have significant numbers of students coming to us at 16 with very low uh, GCSE attainment, very low English and maths attainment in particular. Um, a significant number of those will have been on free school meals all of their life. And my immediate re response to you is, I, I take your point entirely, that's where perhaps the biggest inequality might be, but none of them are going to come anywhere near a contextualised recruitment policy because they're not applying for university and they're not going to apply for elite employment. So are we... Can I come back immediately on that? And this goes back to what Barnaby said. Yeah, I mean, the reason I don't get terribly excited about contextualised admissions is that my heart doesn't bleed, particularly for someone who can't get into an Oxford college and has to go to Bristol to read medicine. I don't think that's where we really should really be concerned as a society. There are, there are children leaving primary school without functional literacy. And they're never going to trouble the scorers in contextualised admissions. And for me, those are the people that need the real help, the real leg up. And that's why I particularly like, for example, the pupil premium policy. So I, you know, I agree with where you're going with this. Yeah, there's a huge problem, and it's not to do with university admissions. By the time you get to university admissions, you're dealing with largely the usual suspect. And contextualised admissions accept mostly the usual suspect. They're largely people who would have gone to university anyway, but actually what people are confusing is whether they're going to a more prestigious university. Bring Barnaby and Joanne in, because I, I also, i very sympathetic to what you said about those who are stuck at the bottom, if you like. Um, but I also think, I think we've got two social mobility problems. We've got one of kind of sticky bottom and sticky top, people who can't improve their lot at the bottom, who you just talked about. But surely the issue about the top is quite important too about who's going to elite universities and who's getting into elite professional jobs. Because if it's the same people from the same backgrounds, isn't that also a social problem? In the sense that if we don't have a porous, if we're going to have elites, we want porous elites, don't we? We want the opportunity to move in and out of them. Joanne, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I um, completely agree with, you know, it is, it is not just about having access to organizations there are you know many many people that you know I people that I'm still friends with you know people in, in my family that would never have thought of going to an organization I stumbled across EY I actually applied for it because it was on um, a public transport route you know I could get a train to it that was one of the main reasons that I applied i otherwise would never have known about it and I think many people would be like that from from similar backgrounds to me so I definitely agree with with that point in terms of the you know who gets who gets in and who gets on that's a that's a huge focus that's one of the things that we're looking at at EY as well and the work we've been doing with them um, progress together around you know it's not just about access into organizations for people from lower social economic backgrounds but actually who progresses through and who is holding those top positions because the people that have those um, influential positions are the people that are making the decisions, are the people who can actually have an impact and have a louder voice and have a platform and be able to do things like this where we can actually hopefully try and break some of those stereotypes and, and, and really make a difference and work with people from all all backgrounds to, to level the playing field. So I think it is a, it is about both, absolutely, and the work that the EY Foundation does is is a critical part of that they work with lots of young people from um disadvantaged backgrounds and and it's not just about getting into elite organizations it's about actually you know changing the trajectory of their life in, into paid employment that doesn't have to be you know a, you know a professional services firm it, it can be whatever it is that they want to be but the point is 
they have the option, they have the choice and they have access to that to make the decision that they want to that is right for them. Great. Thank you, Joanne. I'm going to come on that note back to Barnaby. And Stephen, I'm going to come back to you at the end before we move on to the next question. Barnaby, you spent many years in the independent sector, then went to work in the East End to run a state school. And you mentioned earlier on your archetypal uh, Bangladeshi female learner who you have helped to get to the point when they're going to become uh, a medical student accessing elite universities. It, it, that suggests to me that you think it's very important that we also have that kind of porosity, that openness in the elite and don't just focus on the bottom. We need to focus perhaps on both. Yeah, I mean, I agree with um, many things that have just been said. So um, I, certainly, I certainly think that, um, uh, that, that, that we, we want um, the, uh, we want access to the highest tariff universities and the most uh, demanding jobs and indeed politics to be much more porous in this country than they have been historically. And I think that even the research of the Social Mobility Commission suggests that they are becoming more porous, although possibly too slowly. Um, I completely agree with Stephen's point that you don't want to use aggregate measures too much, that you should be thinking about the individual, because one of the problems we have in independent schools is universities that talk about independent state school ratios, um, you know, reducing the, reducing the proportion of our students who come from independent schools as being a target. And the thing that, that I dislike about that, actually, is not that I'm, a, you know, keen on independent schools, although I am, um, it's, that, it's that it ignores the individual, because I know, I know from my experience that there are some individual, uh, some, some independent schools that are very strong academically, some who are not, many pupils who are able, but many who have got special needs, and a third of my pupils in independent schools are on bursaries, and many of those come from low-income homes and were on free school meals in their state school previously. And so I hate the idea of all the pupils in independent schools and all the pupils in state schools being classified as being of a certain type, because it's just statistically completely wrong. Um, I'm, I'm interested that Stephen doesn't think that a, a school's average results should be a measure that's used, um, because obviously it is, it is widely used. Um, as are the, the polar measures of the quality characteristics of a neighbourhood, but we might come back to that. I certainly agree that there's far too much emphasis in the debate and in the media on Oxford and Cambridge and high tariff universities generally. Um, as I said earlier, the big divide in this country happens at the age of 16, when those who are unfortunate enough to fail, particularly GCSE maths, Found, find themselves unable to access the routes to university. And so there needs to be much more focus, and the Social Com Mobility Commission, I'm sure, is doing this, on the quality of vocational education, but also second chances for those who happen to fail maths GCSE. I think, Joanne, from an employer's point of view, you would probably say, look, we're using them to try and... We're not pretending they're perfect. We're not trying to solve the problems of society but what we're trying to do is broaden the um the, the net really in terms of spotting talent to try and just make that better is that is that a fair description of how ey would would use contextualized recruitment yeah yeah exactly that it is about you know leveling the playing field as much as we can you know to some of the points that that Stephen was making you know there's so many things that you know are 
out of our control. You know, I'd love to come back on that podcast. There are so many things that we could change around the whole historical way that the, you know, the, the institutions are set up, but actually um, what's within our, our, our gifts. So what's in our sphere of influence and what can we do? And of course, there'll always be more that we can do, but contextualized recruitment is one that we see that, that is having that impact and it's allowing us, and we've seen where we have, um, created access to um, individuals that wouldn't have done otherwise if we didn't have contextualised recruitment. So, okay, Thank you. I, w I want to just come back then to all three of you on a last couple of set of questions because that's given a very clear view of kind of how EY would use this. But we've also talked about a range of ways and expressed some concerns about the range of ways contextualised recruitment is used by different organisations in different ways. And so my, qu my final question is about, we talked to some of our commissioners before we did this podcast and I think they were quite surprised at how many universities, for example, may well be using contextualised recruitment and people don't really know. Um, raised the question about, well, do, do the students know? Do their families know? Do the schools know? Um, should they know? Um, what do we think? Can I come to you, Barnaby, on those questions about consistency and transparency? Yeah, I think it's uh, absolutely diabolical. Um, I mean, schools do obviously spend time thinking about this question um will this pupil get a leg up if they apply to that university or not um so there is there is terrible lack of transparency and i mean i don't mind that different universities use different methods um i think that's fair enough but but it's very unclear um and so it's so it's a problem for careers advisors teachers students and families um the um I would certainly put in a plea to the Office for Students, actually, that they should be insisting that universities publish their admissions processes, which includes how they would use contextual admissions. Um, and incidentally, you know, an independent school, if they wish to attract uh, good pupils from state primary schools, let's say, as many would want to do, would explain how, um, they, you know, it doesn't matter that you haven't studied Latin or French, um, this is what you need to achieve to get into this school. You would publish the contextual arrangements. So yeah, I agree. Bad. Just on this issue of transparency and and um, um, and, and variation, are you aware of variations between employers in the way that they use contextualised recruitment? And do you think there's some responsibility for employers to be very transparent about how they use contextualised um, systems? Yeah, I think it's absolutely. Um you know, critical is that transparency piece. I don't, I'm, you know, I'm not going to say I know all of the ins and outs of every other organisation. We work with a really well-known um, provider of contextualised recruitment and we um, publicise on our websites and we share what we use, how we use it, what it means for individuals. So we, uh, uh, you know, at EY are very transparent around using that. We're really proud of, of actually partnering with the organisation that we do. I think you know some of the gaps are in terms of the um, who so who uses it. So similar to what we've said about you know universities and higher education, not all universities use it in the same way. Not all universities use it. It's the same for organisations. So unless or all organisations are willing to share whether they use it or not and how they use it, then that becomes very difficult. Well, thank you to all our guests. I think that's been a fantastic discussion. Um, I think you've really touched on some of the really big issues around this. I mean, obviously there's lots more that could be done. Um, I would say the one that stands out for me amongst the most important is this issue about 
well, yes, we need transparency and clarity about purpose for sexualized admissions, but I think it's really important that we recognize this issue that was raised earlier around those who never even get th to that point because actually there's a big, real big national challenge about the social mobility of those who are at the bottom end and whose opportunities are very limited because they're not even in the position of being able to apply to professional uh, employers or to uh, get into those universities and that is a, an equally big challenge for us at the Social Mobility Commission. So it's a very rounded, nuanced picture. Thank you very much to all of you for helping us uh, really explore some of those issues and to draw on your expertise. You've been fantastic guests, so thank you very much indeed. Please join us for further episodes of the Social Mobility Talks podcast, where we will be joined by a range of knowledgeable guests to discuss the other issues which are crucial to social mobility.